1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super secret studio in the third sub basement of the Ministry of Snark in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothguff, and I am in an undisclosed location. So are all our other guests, because this is an emergency episode of Deep State Radio, called by our listeners who demanded, because there is so much chaos (laughs) happening in the world today.
0: Love our Deep State Radio nerds.
1: We love our nerds and they demanded this and, and we didn't want to disappoint them. So we have at one undisclosed location on the Charles River, Ambassador Nicholas Burns of the Kennedy School. And down south of that, in the, to to some degree or another, we have Ed Luce of the Financial Times, and we have Evelyn Farkas of the Atlantic Council. And across the Atlantic, in a not-so-undisclosed location, <laughs> we have Corey Shockey of the IISS. So what are we talking about? We're talking about Rex Tillerson out after a tenure that might be described as one of the least distinguished in the history of the State Department, also one of the shortest in the modern history of the State Department, especially if you don't count the extremely brief tenure of Lawrence Eagleburger as Secretary of State. Um, And we have him being replaced by CIA Director Mike Pompeo. We have changes there. We also now know that Gary Cohn is being replaced by Lawrence Kudlow, at the National Economic Council, and there are rumors that there are more changes in foot, that Donald Trump is finally going to get what he describes as the cabinet he wants, which, given that that includes Betsy DeVos and Ryan uh, Zinke and and, and Pruitt and, and, uh, and Perry and Shulkin and Carson, you can only imagine what's in his mind for an ideal cabinet. Anyway, Nick, you've been in situations like this before. You've watched changes happen. Um, you've seen state departments go from good to bad and, and 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 from bad to good.
2: What's your take on what's just happened? Well, I think you have to assess. David uh, Rex Tillerson's tenure was troubled. Uh, on the one hand, um, he completely mismanaged the men and women of the foreign service and civil service. These are people who are. Career, They want to serve. They're they're accustomed to serving presidents of both parties. They want to do their job. They want to be trusted. He came in and summarily fired the uh, four or five most senior of our foreign service officers last February. And then, of course, he proposed a 30 percent budget reduction and then didn't fill the majority of our ambassadorships. And so today we have no American ambassador in Berlin, in Ankara, in Seoul, just to name three capitals and didn't bring the Foreign Service into his his world and tried to manage it from afar, and it was a disaster repudiated by Republicans on the Hill as well as Democrats. I would say in his defense, not on that issue, but in terms of his record, I think he was a voice of reason in a lot of ways. He teamed up with Jim Mattis at defense to be a blocking force of the worst impulses of President Trump, he, was, um, he argued for a continuation of the United States in the Iran nuclear deal, he argued for a diplomatic opening, some kind of to- beginning of talks with North Korea, he argued for us to stay in the Paris Climate Change Agreement, and he also argued that the United States ought to stay um, as, as part of the leadership of NATO and shouldn't uh, try to wage war in the EU, all of which were countermanded by President Trump. So if we're looking past Secretary Tillerson at a Secretary-designate Pompeo, in a way, the State Department won't miss the management of Rex Tillerson, but we may miss his rational, middle-of-the-road voice if the change is going to be Mike Pompeo. Well Corey I think that's
1: a, a, as one would expect from Nick that's an excellent analysis of this situation which essentially comes down to Rex Tillerson may have been the worst secretary of state in in recent history and we may miss him soon because <laughs> because, right. Pop, because Pompeo has been chosen not for his brains which are formidable um but because of the fact that he has the one trait that Donald Trump looks for in a cabinet cabinet secretary and that is he seems to like Donald Trump and he's willing to play things the way Donald Trump plays things and um you know this has led when 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 he's been at the uh, tenure at the agency to people feeling that sometimes he would put his thumb on the scale for political reasons which is a big no-no in the world of intelligence And so I'm I'm wondering, what do you expect from Pompeo? Uh,
0: So I have a much more positive view of Pompeo's role as director of central intelligence and of his potential as secretary of state than it sounds like either you or Nick do. Um, It's true that that as director of central intelligence, uh, he is very buddy-buddy with the president. But two things. One, he's a politician, and so um, that he is a backslapping, glad glad-handing, get-along-with-other-politicians kind of guy I don't think is uh, necessarily a character flaw or a professional failure. Um, moreover, one of the big reasons that Secretary Tillerson was completely ineffective was that he never managed to establish any kind of relationship with the president of the United States. And uh, as for supporting the president's policies, you know, I'm a little bit um, sympathetic to the view that only one of these guys got elected president and he has the right to gather around himself a cabinet of people who will carry out the policies that he campaigned on. Uh, Even though, as you guys know, I, I don't like those policies. I think they're bad for our country um the last thing i will say about pompeo is that you know he didn't sycophantically go along with the president when the president impugned the integrity of the intelligence community or said things for example about the intelligence community's conclusions about russia's interference in our election it's true that he didn't walk out in front of a bank of tv cameras and and contradict the president of the united states But he did always issue a written statement clarifying what the CIA had assessed and concluded and establishing the baseline truth. And what I have noticed about people in the Trump administration who are able to differ from the president's views and keep their jobs is that that's the way they navigate an erratic president um, and try and maintain their own integrity.
2: Well,
1: as you do every week, Corey,
0: <laughs> you have brushed up
1: that tiara of optimism. Given us- oh,
0: wait a minute, wait a minute. I do have one more optimistic thing to add to that, which wow. is that I have not heard a gnashing of teeth out of people in the intelligence community in his time as the director of central intelligence. Nothing near to the complaints that foreign service officers and civil servants in the State Department had about Rex Tillerson. Um, Pompeo has been a soldier and I suspect is good at the basic leadership stuff that Tillerson appeared to be such a catastrophe at in the State Department.
1: All right. Well, let's get a couple... Let's get a couple. I can of jump
0: m- in
3: on that, actually, if I'm allowed.
1: Of course, you're allowed. That's why you're here.
3: <laughs> but you're in charge, so I don't want to okay. be Okay,
1: well I I'm permit. Sure. I, I permit you.
3: Okay, um, <laughs> because because I, I the the one piece of data, you know, I went out to ask some folks that I knew who were Republicans who were in touch with rank and file in the agency in the CIA to find out, you know, how is he as a manager because. As Nick aptly mentioned, very in the very beginning, you know, the biggest weakness, the most public weakness of the outgoing Secretary of Tillerson was that he was a horrendous manager. And what I heard coming back was that actually, at the agency, he's done a good job listening to the people. So I think that that is. I would agree. I just want to kind of um polish Corey's um, tr of optimism with this kind of um, additional piece of data, you know, that the people inside the building, because I think from the outside world, a lot of us, especially those of us who worked on the Hill and watched Porter Goss, who was another House member, uh, also happened to be a Republican, joining a Republican administration to run the CIA, very political guy, got up there and he was a disaster. He was overly political. He was almost hostile to the workforce. And by all accounts, Porter Goss did not follow. Uh, sorry, um, Mike Pompeo did not follow in Porter Goss's steps. Footsteps.
1: Okay. Well, that's certainly that's certainly a plus. And just give us your your take here on the on the very end of this, and then I'm going to segue over to you, and then back to Nick um, about one of the proximate causes of this, which seemed to be Taylorson's comments about the Russian attacks in the UK, and then I want to talk about Theresa May's response to that.
4: Uh, indeed, well, look, I'd share I'd share the general view that um, you know he was uh, one of the worst secretaries of state ever, and um, boy, are we going to miss him. Um, but I would I would like to sort of perhaps tarnish
0: <laughs> tarnish
4: the tiara of optimism a little bit there in that you know the plus side, the boy that we're we're going to miss him element to this is uh, that he was one of the few people within uh, Trump's uh, orbit who was prepared to stand up to him. And to disagree with him, you know, notwithstanding all the terrible managerial record that he had at the State Department and the the really sort of unparalleled bad legacy he leaves inside that building. Uh, And the fact that Pompeo might, you know, could hardly fail to be an improvement on that measure. Nevertheless, Tillerson was was uh, had the spine to stand up to Trump, um, disagree with him and, you know, tolerate being dissed by him on Twitter and in other fora by the president consistently and still carry on doing his job. And there are precious few of those left. One obvious one is the Defense Secretary Jim Mattis. It's hard to, I, I wouldn't put H.R. McMaster in that category, certainly wouldn't put General Kelly in that category. We've got, and, and Pompeo, I don't think fits in that category either. So I, I think for the world, if you're looking at this from the point of view of the rest of the world, it is rather an ominous. It is rather an ominous development. Pompeo is as opposed to the Iran nuclear deal as Trump. Uh, he um, uh, w- is certainly um, not diplomatic in terms of how he speaks about Muslims and the Muslim world. He's all gung ho for Guantanamo Bay and enhanced interrogation techniques, um, and I could go on. Um, uh, so I, I, I don't. I, 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 don't feel like um, burnishing the tiara of, of optimism. And, and Evelyn and, and uh, Corey did a wonderful job. They did the best possible job in burnishing it. But um, uh, I don't think it's merited, honestly.
1: Well, let me make you feel a little better, Ed, because I want to turn to Nick and I'm going to ask him something. And I suspect part of his question will at least make you feel a little better about your own country. Because one of the things that was approximate cause for this was this um, uh, terrorist attack by the russians using a nerve agent on a former russian agent and his daughter but that affected scores of other people in england and rex tillerson essentially said this kind of thing can't stand and was fired 14 hours later and uh the president hasn't really spoken out in any meaningful way against this. He said maybe something and and some sort of thing on his way to a helicopter, but he hasn't done anything about it. And now, today, Theresa May has kicked out, I think, 23 uh, Russian diplomats, taken very strong action, said that it was definitely um, the Russians, um, and... Uh, actually behaved as a leader should behave in this kind of situation. And others in Europe, including Donald tusk, um, uh, have have supported that. And the United States has remained silent. Nick, I was just wondering, you know, do you see this as a proximate cause of what led to Tillerson's downfall?
2: and you know, how do you explain it? Well, the president, you know, typically revealed himself the other day, yesterday when he said that they weren't on the same wavelength, and he specifically cited, uh, the fact that he and Tillerson disagreed on the Iran nuclear deal. But I think it was a series of issues over time where, where as Ed says, Tillerson had the guts to speak back and, and do what cabinet officers are supposed to do, show loyalty, but also tell the president when they think the president's heading down the wrong path. And this president doesn't seem to like that. It was interesting as well, David. He said that the biggest selling, selling point for Pompeo is that they're on the same wavelength, i.e. they never disagreed. That's a little bit troubling. You do want a Secretary of State to push back. Russia, I think, David, has been, in my judgment, the greatest foreign policy failure of the Trump presidency and where he's been weakest, and it's where we need to be strongest. You've had the fact that the Russians launched this conspiracy against our election, zero response from the president, leaving our states undefended, and frankly, leaving a lot of the European allies in the wake as well because they've had their elections. Affected, and now this nerve agent attack. Nothing could be more clear than that the United States has to stand besides Britain, our closest friend in the world. You have all you have this attack on Salisbury, England, not just on the former KGB agent, Mr. Skripal and his daughter, but on citizens of Salisbury. The Prime Minister, I watched her, and, and um in question time today at the House of Commons, she could not have been more clear that Britain is looking for the open support of her NATO allies. Is what she said. Silence from the president of the United States. Our ambassador to NATO, K. Bailey Hutchinson, put out a very good statement. Other Americans lower down the chain have said the right thing. But the president is silent. And he's had many bites at this apple over the last 24 hours. He'll have more today in Missouri. But the fact that the United States president can't come out and support the United Kingdom and encourage the other NATO allies to sanction Russia, expel Russian diplomats, keep certain Russians out of our countries... It's, it's just shameful, and you cannot imagine Ronald Reagan, for instance, just to name a Republican president, or Dwight D. Eisenhower, or either of the Bushes, passing up this opportunity to do what's, what is natural for an American leader, and that's to be the leader of the West. And I think in the past 14 months, Trump has given up that role. It's now being played by Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel and today, Theresa May, and that's sad for an American to reflect about. It's hard to imagine any American
1: president behaving this way.
2: It is. I mean, you, you go back, um, you go back to, all the way to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the creation of modern America as a superpower. All of our presidents in both parties have understood that we're head of an alliance in both the Atlantic sphere and also in Asia, that you have to be consistently supportive of your allies, especially when your number one adversary in the world, Vladimir Putin, seeks to undermine, directly challenge the sovereignty and security of, in this case, the United Kingdom. And, you know, I think that so many people have just, we're so tired of Donald Trump not doing the right thing. He gets a pass. There hasn't been enough criticism from people like Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell because they believe what all of us believe, and that is the United States has to act in defense of its allies. But somehow this president gets a pass, and that's a very dangerous thing for us to allow to happen. Well, you know, I'm wondering, Corey,
1: what are the institutional consequences of this? Clearly, the Atlantic alliance is weakened by having an American president like this. Most of what an alliance does is not actually fighting wars. Most of what an alliance does is act in unison to send a common message. And if the most powerful member of the alliance won't do it, a lot of the effectiveness of the alliance and sort of you know, 95% of what an alliance does is diminished. Isn't that true? And, and and is there a sense in the UK and as you're dealing with people across Europe right now of, uh, you know, of the deeper problem here, which is not personality shuffles in the White House, a personality shuffles in the administration. It's that the president of the United States is largely the one who has led people like Tillerson and Pompeo to have these policies.
0: So I agree with your assessment that the president is the problem, and I agree with Nick's assessment um, of the president's failures and of Republicans' failures in covering for the president. I myself was greatly relieved today to see uh, Chuck Schumer, minority leader in the Senate, Ben Sass. A Republican from Nebraska and others start to issue statements that sounded more presidential than our president sounds. Um, and I think there
1: are the time- car- there are cartoon characters that sound more presidential than our president sounds. I mean, uh, there's there's I have inanimate objects. I'm looking at a stuffed owl <laughs> in my office. More presidential than the president.
0: Uh, yes. Athena's witness in your office. I'm so glad to hear it, David.
1: That's that's good. Uh, I I
0: I think it is important at a time where the president is failing to be a clarion voice for the West, for our friends and our enemies, to hear a wide breadth of other American voices and to understand how bipartisan support for Britain uh, in responding to this attack. By the Russians is uh, how much routine police and intelligence and foreign policy and defense policy and Treasury Department interaction there is, where you know the British government, the British police are now going to reopen fourteen additional cases of suspicion, Rus- suspicious Russian deaths in Britain, and. And I am confident that the United States and all the other NATO allies are going to be helping the British sleuth through this. Democracies are slow to organize. They're slow to acknowledge the state of the threat. Um, But there's actually a lot that's good that's happening, right? Like NATO made an important statement today of solidarity. Uh, The the British worded the prime minister's statement in such a way that it didn't uh, trigger a NATO Article 5 uh, conversation because it actually wasn't an armed attack on a NATO ally, but it, as Nick knows better than any of us, it did trigger an Article 4 conversation, which will very right. soon start happening, and showing the cooperative reaction of allies and the strength of allies, I think we, is a really positive message. We should drag the Russians into the NATO-Russia Council and ask them to explain themselves. We, should, uh, we, sh- we have three huge advantages that we don't use often enough transparency, allies and institutions. We ought to go to the Organization for the Prevention of Chemical Weapons and ask them to set up an independent panel to look at the chemical weapon that was used. We should allow the British and the Russians to be present when it happens, but probably not either of them sit on the panel. The only thing that I, that really grieves me uh, beyond what Nick and you have already pointed out, David, is that after September 11th, the British prime minister took the initiative and the British government fanned out across the world and got allies doing uh, helpful things for the United States. It got NATO's first invocation of Article 5 when we didn't even ask for it. They got the United Nations Security Council acting in constructive ways. And I grieve that our country is not taking that kind of leadership for our closest friends right now.
1: Yeah, well, that's clearly true. And both both of you have made great points here. Ed, you wrote a terrific column. You write many terrific columns. Your most recent column I thought was especially um, on target. And it, it it addresses a different aspect of U.S. national security. Donald Trump has said, I want a cabinet that, you know, is that I'm comfortable with, that looks like me. And essentially what he's trying to do, I think, is get to one um, that is more comfortable for him and where people don't stand up to him. And I think as a consequence of that, you make the point that that Secretary Mattis and 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 Robert Mueller are now sort of pivotal to US national security. Because they remain among the very few in-place counterbalances to the impulses, sometimes destructive impulses, of this administration. I thought it might be a good opportunity for you to elaborate on that.
4: Well, thank you for your kind words. I mean, their, their, their job security, I think the way I put it, is now, their, as in uh, Mueller and, and um, uh, Mattis' job security, is now indistinguishable from America's national security. Um, the I just want to add a point, though, to the very eloquent suggestions uh, made by Corey and by Nick on, on the British American apparent divide over this Russian nerve gas um, a- a- attack. You know, if Britain if Britain finds itself relatively relatively alone um, in terms of what it can do um, over and above this expulsion of, of Russian intelligence agencies. Uh, agents uh, or diplomats. Um, there is one point of massive leverage that Britain and the United States have over Russia, and that is the extraordinary amount of Russian money that is invested in the British property market, in uh, in British assets, in, in yachts, um, children at prep schools and so forth, with no beneficial owner. Now most countries mandate having the beneficial owner, the ultimate owner of of an asset being named. Most countries require that by law. Britain and the United States do not. There was a treasury department report three years ago that estimates that $300 billion of Russian laundered money comes into the United States every single year, every single year. Um, this is leverage. This is huge leverage. If you remember the Panama Papers, Putin took that personally. He thought Hillary had arranged them to be leaked. Um, uh, that showed up billions of dollars that have been transferred by places like Cyprus um, to, Putin's, um, uh, 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 to Putin, and no sign of that money being repaid. These are sort of fake loans from, from various Russian entities. Um, this is an enormous point of leverage. Corey mentioned transparency. Um, the transparency we, as, as the two uh, sort of English-speaking um, dirty money democracies, can bring to bear if we change our ways Um, uh, is absolutely enormous. Now, the fact is, I don't think Donald Trump would want to, but others, um, for very personal reasons, but I think others can really press on that. And that's another reason why why we should all be rooting very strongly for Robert Mueller, not just to keep his job, but to do his job to the fullest of his abilities. This is a, a deeply important question of national and transatlantic security.
1: So, Evelyn, I, you know, I, mean, I think Ed has made a great point here and one that actually is not aired that often in terms of the leverage that we've got. But the matter seems to be somewhat complicated by the fact that it, Donald Trump, Jared Kushner, Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka Trump, and a lot of people in and around that administration, Wilbur Ross, seem to love that dirty money game, seem to have a lot of skin in that dirty money game. Uh, and don't seem to be the ones who are going to go and, and make a change on this. Uh, and that maybe, once again, because of who we've got in leadership in, in Washington, the lead is going to have to come from someplace else. I'm just wondering what your take
0: is.
3: Well, I mean, yeah, I, look, I, I agree with uh, everything everyone else said and there are a whole list of other things that we could do in concert with our British allies. And I would I would just make a point that we also have a, prob- a probable Russian assassination that occurred here in Washington, D.C. in 2015 in a, in a, in a, in a hotel in DuPont Circle in Washington. I've already said of Washington, D.C., of Mikhail lesson, uh, a former um, really right hand man in the media world of Putin who fell out with him and ended up dead under suspicious circumstances here. So we certainly could cite that also as a reason for feeling, you know, national uh, our own. In patriotic national affront at the Russian assault uh, of the British sovereignty. And again, probably our sovereignty in that instance as well. Um, but with regard to the dealing with corruption and transparency in the United States, I absolutely agree. There, there, there are people on the Hill. So members of Congress have drafted legislation addressing this, addressing the the lack of transparency with regard to beneficial ownerships and ownership of LLCs and other entities. They've drafted legislation to make it very clear that money flows need to be um, attributed. I mean, there, there is a raft of legislation that is, frankly speaking, outside of my area of expertise that has been proposed. But for whatever reason, it's not being actually ushered through. And that's something Congress could do, you don't. I mean, the president ultimately would have to sign it, much as he was forced to sign the sanctions legislation. But it could be signed, and you know, I would say that Congress needs to put him to the test. But again, we also face a deficit of leadership, sadly speaking, on the side of the majority party uh, running Congress these days.
1: Uh, yeah. Well, that's that's for sure. They're all part of a kind of a symbiotic uh, relationship that. You know, feathers their nest than that of their friends and doesn't do much, much else. You know, Nick, I get a little frustrated. You know, we had to have an emergency podcast here because the news happens so fast. And in fact, yesterday, you know, I was like busy with this Tillerson news all day long and talking to different media outlets and writing stuff and so forth. And then I had to rush up to New York and and, you know, that got was asked to go to a TV studio at 10 o'clock to be on a TV show and I got to the studio and heavy breathing and I walk in and we're already on to the next story, you know, and it was, we were into the Pennsylvania primary and we, and the Tillerson yeah. segment got bumped. It was like, I traveled 300 miles and I got <laughs> wow.
0: There and, and, it,
1: and it was like, oh yeah, well, no, we're, we're not going to, and they, you know, gave me a car and everything. They were the ones that got me there and it was like, no, we're, we, we can't do it. We have to focus on this Pennsylvania race and then
4: David, you know this you should name and shame the TV uh,
3: No, uh, no because it's probably my network and Nick's network. Oh
4: sorry, okay. yeah, no, <laughs> it,
1: it, it is because that's the yeah. only, that's that's the one I'm on all the time too. But but <laughs> but it was like okay and I, I smiled and walked out of there but it, this is just what happens in this day and age and this morning it's Larry Kudlow or today it's Larry Kudlow um who's just you know let's let's pick an economic advisor cuz he plays one on television just to Kind of a, 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 a you know really radically bad choice as National Economic Council and a and a step down, but I want to get ahead of the news, and it seems really likely that H.R. McMaster is going to go. Now we've talked a little bit about you know different candidates, and you know there is a kind of school of thought that maybe somebody sane like Steve Began is going to go and become the National uh, Security Advisor, but there's been a lot of thought. Uh, and a, and a little more buzz recently about John Bolton again, and 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 I I, I want to relay to you that I, I I saw a little story this morning about a from a journalist who asked somebody in the White House, well, if John Bolton becomes the National Security Advisor, will he have to shave his mustache? Uh, because
0: because the president doesn't. It's
1: not like, the look the president wants. The president doesn't like mustaches.
0: A and guy the, with that hairstyle is commenting on other people's stylistic choices?
4: Well, um, you know... But, Corey, but, Corey but, you're not about to get back get back into 1970s porn actors. I was <laughs> <laughs> so no. not going to revive that visual, Ed,
0: but I'm sure glad you did.
1: Well, but, <laughs> but I'll, t- I'll tell you something. The, the, the reporter was talking to the White House source on this, asked whether he'd have to shave it, and the White House source didn't laugh. The White House source said... Well, I just don't know, but, but that's a sensitive subject. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. Um, but it was also not like an out-and-out out denial the, of the fact that Bolton is in the running. Now, personally, I don't want to color your view here. Personally, I would take Bolton's mustache as national security advisor over Bolton himself. He can go. <laughs> we can put the mustache in that office in the West Wing. But I'm just wondering, <laughs> as, as we look forward you know, to change in the office of the National Security Advisor, at the same time there is change in the office of the head of the CIA, at the same time that there is change in the State Department. And that change may not happen as quick as people want, because there may be some confirmation issues and so forth. And we're about to launch into this thing with North Korea, and we've got all this other sensitive stuff going on. Um. Isn't just the change itself a formula for disaster, And do you have an opinion on the national security advisor?
2: Well, it could be. and 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 David, both you and I have worked at the NSC, and we've seen how critical that position has become in in modern times. it's It's the cockpit of the Western world, if you will. It's the central organizing office. And I think most of our successful modern presidents have understood that you really need to put together a team here. It's not just appointing individual by individual, Madison. Haspel and Pompeo. But how is the team going to gel or not gel? And the most successful administrations have been administrations when the president is self-confident and skillful. You don't have that here. The president is willing to delegate major parts of the job to, uh, of of the foreign policy job to the Secretary of State and Defense. You don't really have that either, although that could change under, under Pompeo. And it could continue to be, I think, a good relationship between the president and Jim Mattis at defense, but you need that key person at NSC. I hope it's Steve Began, if that's if it becomes down to Steve Began versus John Bolton. Steve is a professional. He was chief of staff of the NSC for Condi Rice when she was NSC advisor. He is, he's someone who's focused a lot on Russia in his career and is very tough-minded about the Russians. He also, due to his experience as vice president of Ford a motor company, a big position for Ford, knows a lot about trade, and I think has a very sophisticated view of of how trade works in the modern world. Has not always been in favor of these big multilateral agreements where he and I have diverged, but I respect his knowledge. John Bolton, I know quite well. I worked with him when I was under Secretary of State. He was the ambassador to the UN um one of my jobs was to send him his instructions every day that's how the state department works and um how did that work how did that go for you it worked very badly uh john bolton uh is someone who's extraordinarily aggressive about the use of american power he's dismissive of our allies he's hooked on um military uh, the use of force as the primary instrument of what we should be doing in the world I don't think he'd work well, if I can say this, with Secretary Mattis or Secretary Pompeo. I don't think he has the personality to subordinate himself. I mean, I think a lot of us who I, who worked for Brent Scowcroft, I worked for Brent for nearly three years in the Bush 41 administration, see him as the model, someone who is self-effacing, who served the president loyally, but who understood that the major cabinet officers had to have precedence, but also who built a team. I don't see John Bolton doing that. And David, look right down the pike. You have uh, this week the president, at least as of today, shamefully silent uh, in supporting Britain on the nerve, uh, the nerve agent attack. You have the decision by mid May on whether or not the United States is in the Iran nuclear deal for good or out. And it looks like we may be heading out if the president and Mike Pompeo will have their way. That's going to that's be tremendously costly, it'll harm our relations further with the Germans, French, and British, I think it also makes the opening to North Korea much more problematic, because if you're Kim Jong-un, you look at an American president who is not willing to meet American commitments very seriously undertaken by President Obama on the Iran side, how likely is it he's going to want to make a deal with the United States knowing that President Trump doesn't honor deals? And then you have the opening, this possible opening to North Korea itself, I actually think that there's an argument to have expedited confirmation hearings for Mike Pompeo because you need him to go out in advance of the president to determine if Kim is actually serious about denuclearization. After all, we only have this through one visit to Pyongyang by two South Korean senior officials. I think Pompeo's going to need to advance this. You need a good team. And it's not and, it's, it's not the time to change every member of your national security well and also you, or you nearly you, every member
1: you, you don't you don't have the bench right I mean I think six of the t- eight or ten top slots in the State Department are still open you, that's you right have. you
2: have five undersecretaries and right now you have um, you have exactly one was fired yesterday Tom Shannon's the only undersecretary and he's going to be leaving government very soon and of your of your managers at the State Department about the 20 Odd uh, assistant secretaries, you have maybe a quarter of them filled. Of your major ambassadorships, uh, the majority unfilled. This is a ghost ship in the State Department, and you're taking on North Korea, Iran, and containment of Russia at the same time. This is no time to bring John Bolton into the NSC.
1: Well, we, cer- we certainly agree on that. But, Corey, the scenario that we're describing here, uh, that Nick very effectively described, is... Um, it's it's more troubling to me based on sort of what's likely. It's not likely that um, you know you're going to have massive transformation of all these people in the next couple of months. And if that's the case, Pompeo views part of his mandate, I think, as 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 blowing up this Iran deal. Uh, I think the, the the president specifically said that, as Nick said, as one of the reasons he's in there. If he does that, obviously tensions flare in that part of the world. At the same time, if he does that, as Nick points out, the North Korea, who, why would North Korea sign a deal with the United States when it's blowing up another deal? Um, so, 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 you know, tensions are likely to flare there. And with Mueller hot on the trail of Trump and Trump looking for distraction, um, it, it gets you into a world that's very dangerous and full of wag-the-dog temptations. Uh,
0: so, yes, I agree. We are in a world that is very, very dangerous and full of wag-the-dog temptations. I am less concerned about that particular dynamic than I think you and others are, David, because um, I... I actually think the president's uh, um, strongly disinclined to use military force. He has not uh, sustained the red line he established about Syrian chemical weapons use, uh, despite clear evidence that that the Syrian government on at least four occasions has used chemical weapons since President Trump. made such a show of enforcing that red line. Moreover, when selecting among options for how to respond when the president did respond a year or so ago, um, he chose the least provocative of them. So I actually think this is one more, this is likelier to be a case where the president talks tough and does too little and so creates... As President Obama created a gap between our policies and what we are actually willing to do, and so so I think that is the greater likelihood of downside risk in this moment. Um, I have a I have a practical question that I honestly don't know the answer to. Does a member? Does somebody being confirmed for one senior job in the administration allow them to make a lateral move to another department without confirmation? That is Pompeo's. Okay. Okay. So he is going to go through confirmation hearings.
1: Yes. So he is. And Rand Paul has already said that he will oppose the nomination. And John McCain is not there. So both. Um, Pompeo and uh, Gina uh, Haspel uh, are in trouble. And of course, she has all the baggage associated with torture and waterboarding. Pompeo got confirmed, I think, at the CIA with 14 Democratic votes. So even if Rand Paul doesn't support him, he might get through. But I, I think, you know, potentially her nomination uh, is not a. Is not a slam dunk, Evelyn. I don't know if you have an opinion on her nomination.
3: Well, I don't. I don't know her personally, and though I was working on the Hill during that time period, at the very end when when the tapes were destroyed, so that's a separate issue from the torture per se. It's the destruction of the evidence of the torture. Um, so one 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 problem with her is that she oversaw directly oversaw one of the black facilities in Thailand where they conducted torture, and the second one is that. After it was discovered by Congress that there were tapes that the CIA had made of the interrogations, which included, of course, recording of the torture, she was the person who signed off on the directive to destroy the tapes, which went counter to what Congress had directed. So, those are two troubling issues. Um, I am told that she is very well regarded by rank and file CIA as well as. Obama-era officials who oversaw her, who worked with her. Um, But those are tough things. And the fact that the president himself has this terrible track record when it comes to the issue of torture, whereby he's basically said that if it weren't for Secretary Mattis, he would be fine with it, and our government would be torturing again. I mean, in effect, that's what he said. He said, I'll leave it up to my secretary of defense. Um, Of course, there are laws against torture, so it's not quite so simple. I'm being a little flip. But the president himself, as we know, has made several utterances in favor of torture, more or less. She, if she is to succeed, really will have to come out and, and, I think, directly address those two concerns in public and then, of course, in the closed classified hearings that the intelligence committees will have in her case.
1: Okay, we, we've only got a couple of minutes here, so I'm going to ask you a question, Ed, then we'll go around to everybody with a 30-second uh, answer, and then we'll then we'll wrap ourselves up. But Ed, you know, coming as you do from having actually worked with, with the Treasury Department and, and and being at the Financial Times, I do think we need to make some kind of a comment here on the Larry Kudlow pick. Uh, Kudlow, of course, has, you know, got a history, worked in the Reagan administration, and um, was the chief economist at Bear Stearns. Uh, and then he was a TV commentator. He also had some drug problems, and uh, he doesn't have an advanced degree in economics. And you know, there's 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 a lot of criticism of him being a kind of an erratic character. Um, but I, I'm wondering if you'd sort of take a step back and sort of say, well, Gary Cohn was a stabilizing force on on a lot of these issues like trade. Tillerson stabilizing force on issues like trade, while Kudlow had a record in this regard, he's obviously sort of give that up to come in, given where the president is. You know, we don't talk as much about the international economic side, but with the Peter Navarro's and the Wilbur Ross's seemingly in the ascendancy, this sort of advent of nationalist economic policy seems like it's likely to accelerate and deepen. Is that your view?
4: Uh, It's certainly my view. I mean, Kudlow, as you know, uh, originally opposed, uh, he's enough of uh, of an economist to have opposed Trump's tariff measures. On steel, and I have to say this word again aluminium. Um,
1: Thank you. <laughs> hearts are fluttering all over
0: the
4: place. <laughs>
0: the deep state nerds are all going to adjust how they say this.
4: <laughs> well, Corey, it's a matter of time before you start pronouncing it that way. Um, but I mean, good uh, though. Larry Cudlow changed his view and said, oh, well, you know, perhaps it's a good bargaining chip to get other countries to be more open on trade. And Trump, you know, um, said publicly that that was enough. You know, they, they, they're a meeting of minds. It could have been worse. You know, I mean, Trump could have drafted in Stephen Moore, for example, or indeed, at one point he was considering Peter Navarro. Um, as head of the National Economic Council. You know, I do think the key job here is one that the person in that job is not performing, and that is Treasury Secretary, um, It's, it's uh, which Steve Mnuchin uh, inhabits. Um, he's treating it as a cheerleading role. As you know, it's his job um, to deal with the sanctions side of, Americans, uh, of US policy um, and uh, the Russia sanctions, have not yet um, been put in place. They were passed months ago by Congress. The administration then announces this sort of comical Forbes richest Russian list, and we've heard nothing of it since. Um, the Trump administration, and this obviously comes from the top, is doing nothing um, to follow up on these sanctions. And, and you know that's Steven Hitchin's job. Um, so, uh, you know, if any of my colleagues happen to be or myself interviewing him in the coming days, that would be my first question. I have no idea whether Larry Cudlow has the sort of um, interagency skills. I doubt it. But the, the experience to be a neutral channel of advice across the administration, as well as an advocate of a position. It's a difficult balancing act for anybody in, in the NEC or the NSA role. Um, but I do think um, it could have been worse.
3: <laughs> it could have well, been Lou Dobb.
4: Yeah,
1: yeah, well, that's where we're going with this thing. I think Steve Mnuchin's replacement will be Maria Bartiromo. But, you know, <laughs> we'll, get, we'll just get... Deep. That is
0: an entirely plausible theory, David.
1: Yeah, no, it, it is entirely. So let me give you each, just because so much has happened, a little 30-second question on different subjects, and then we'll wrap up. And let me go back to you, Nick. Give me two or three pieces of advice for Mike
2: Pompeo. I think he's got a real opportunity to re-engage the State Department workforce, the career civil and foreign service by showing support for them, by convincing Trump and uh, Mick Mulvaney, the OMB director to raise the budget to appoint senior diplomats. This is an open door for him and the department will work very loyally for him if he would show that kind of support first. Second, uh, his biggest test is gonna be North Korea. That's why I think he should be, if he's going to be confirmed, his hearing should be uh, held early. And obviously he's read in on that as CIA director. He knows the issue well. That's an important test to show that he not only believes in American might, and he has a good record of being strong on defense, but can he be a creative diplomat? Tillerson had a very interesting way of looking at that as as he talked about North Korea. He said, we're not going into negotiations. We're going to have talks about talks. That could go on for months. That's a good thing to keep us away from war, to establish some kind of dialogue with this mysterious isolated regime in Pyongyang. I think that'll be his early test to focus on.
1: Excellent. Corey, I'm going to ask you to do something I know you're a little reluctant to do, but but, but give it a shot. Uh, I think, you know, the Secretary of Defense is sort of alone on Mattis Island. You know, he's alone on a delta Island here. Tillerson was kind of his buddy in the mix here, although he's got a relationship with Kelly. He's got to be feeling a little isolated these days. Now, one of the things that Mattis has done, which Tillerson never did, Uh, and it's in part because he came up through the system, is he's maintained the department as his base. He's got the department with him. He uses the department as a form of leverage. Um, But still, he's got to feel a little isolated in the the midst of all these shifts. And I'm wondering what, what you think that effect will be.
0: Uh, the Secretary of All Defense can easily speak for himself, and I wouldn't presume to do so. Uh, well, having I said think, that, what do you
1: think the effect of the changes around him will be on his role? Uh,
0: you know, I, as far as I know, the Secretary of Defense didn't know the former Secretary of State before they started working together, and they managed to establish a good, solid working relationship to to talk through policy differences and to try and craft common approaches. And I think Jim Mattis is smart enough and professional enough to find ways to do that all over the place. Um, So I doubt he is feeling alone on Mattis Island, not least because as you suggest, he's surrounded by 1,300,000 of his voters, that is the women and men of the Department of Defense. My sense is that that losing Tillerson uh, may shift the balance on policies in the administration, but I'm not entirely convinced of that. It's not clear to me that Tillerson, so, so I agree with what someone said earlier that Tillerson was on the right side of very many of these arguments. I do not believe that mattered at all in the president's decisions on these arguments. So I'm not sure he's a loss. I'm not sure Tillerson uh, Pompeo won't be a net gain by being smart enough to navigate dealing with the president in a way that uh, achieves objectives.
1: Ed, what do you think the next big personnel change is going to be and how far does this go? I mean, you know, we're in this period of remarkable turmoil. Is he going to change McMaster, change Shulkin at VA? There's rumors that Shulkin will be replaced by Barry Um, Are there other people you think are on the outs? Can this stabilize? Um, You know, and, you know, does, I mean, it's a 30 second question, but I mean, where do you think this is going to lead as Trump seems to be buying into the notion that his greatest success will be if he he lets Trump be Trump?
4: Uh, That he certainly does seem to be buying into that notion. And I doubt the, you know, Pennsylvania shock uh, the lamb, the lamb not going to the slaughter, um, is is going to have changed his mind on on his sort of general feeling of uh, Trumpiness. Um, uh, you know, we I, I, we we are about due for a Mueller um, a new a new round of Mueller indictments. Um, you know, I'm watching Roger Stone's public appearances um, on Fox and elsewhere, um, uh, hearing about uh, various. Um, Fairly credible rumours about Rick Gates's um, negotiated indictment and the kind of information he could be providing to the special counsel, um, and so I would I would be worried about uh, Robert Mueller's um, um, or Robert Mueller's position um, in the coming weeks with Trump in this frame of mind. And whilst we're talking about Russian nerve gas and Russia stepping up um, its sort of blatant, overt um, behaviour, you know, this is this is a much more this was a much more, um, um, uh, um, much less well-disguised ki- um, poisoning than the polonium one 10 years ago, um, uh, then I would be worrying about Christopher Steele's um, security. Um, you know, that they, they haven't tended to target foreign nationals. They usually target Russians on foreign soil. But I suspect Christopher Steele, um, you know, it, it, it ought to be stepping up his security.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's it's, it's always been interesting to consider how the Russians will play this thing the way they play them. Evelyn, one of the things that we talk about a lot is Trump's crises are all of his own creation, and he hasn't really faced one of international creation yet. We're in a period of really remarkable turmoil where the leadership structure of the U.S. government will not settle down for the next two to three months. What do you think's the most dangerous situation during that period.
3: Oh my gosh. I mean, I tend to agree with Nick that, and I guess it's the obvious one, you know, that, um, something will go wrong with those negotiations with North Korea if they're not handled properly, if they do proceed as early as May with just the president doing what I call the ribbon cutting, you know, which is basically kicking off some kind of process that has been poorly defined. And somehow that does, that conversation with Kim Jong-un doesn't go well. Um, so I, I worry about something going wrong there because I think all of us agree this is kind of a bipartisan agreement, a bipartisan and Trumpian agreement. We're all together right now agreeing that, that speaking is better than fire and fury. And as long as the pressure is kept on the maximum engagement part, that, as Nick pointed out, let's just keep talking. Um, but I worry a little bit about something going wrong if it's not handled properly and the president goes in there and the talks go awry. Having said that, um, the the things that we don't, we can't predict. I mean, there are so many things. You know, God forbid we have some kind of terrorist incident on our soil because we know our president uses that in a very negative fashion, generally speaking, to divide Americans, to advocate for all kinds of destructive policies when it comes to not only unity within America, but our relations with other countries across the globe. So I think, obviously, that would be... Um, a problem for the administration. Uh, the you know we have uh, troops fighting in Syria, in Afghanistan. Um, those are areas where things could happen. Um, you know, they're kinetic already. Um, uh, so certainly, if there were some kind of crisis, the Russian government, I think they got the message from us when we killed the Russian. Contractors who basically were, in essence, under the control of the Kremlin, who were encroaching on the u s troops who were there with the Syrians fighting um, ISIS. and the, I think the Russia, the Kremlin and the Russian military got the message, don't mess with the Americans in Syria. But God forbid they test us again. And I will say that I did view that in part as a test. So there are a whole host of things that could there, you know, there's there are the Chinese who <laughs> are watching. This North Korea development, this dialogue development with some measure of concern because they're now a little bit left out of it. And that's another part of this dynamic. You know, most people don't realize that the South Korean foreign minister and the Japanese foreign minister are both supposed to land, I believe, Friday um, in the United States. And um, we used to have the six party talks where all these countries knew how they fit into a negotiation with North Korea and now that doesn't seem to be the case. So um, I'm going back to North Korea. Sorry, <laughs> but but I mean I think you know there there are a whole bunch of uh, potential crisis you know situations around the globe, and unfortunately our president doesn't reach out and look for allies, and he certainly doesn't reach out when our allies going back to to, to the UK situation when our allies are confronted by a crisis. So. If there is a crisis, his, his, his reflexes are all negative. And I guess that's all I can say.
1: That's been terrific. This has been a terrific episode. By the way, as we were recording this episode, um, Nikki Haley, the next Republican presidential candidate, said that if we don't take immediate concrete measures to address this, meaning the Russian attack in the UK, Salisbury will not be the last place we will see chemical weapons used. This is a defining moment which is interesting. I guess this is Nikki Haley's red line on chemical weapons use. Uh, And in terms of immediate action, I wonder if that might include sanctions of some sort. I think I know the answer. I think you know the answer because you're deep state radio nerds and you're ahead of the game on everything because you listen to great conversations like this one. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Evelyn. Thank you, Ed. We'll be back with another show actually tomorrow. The one we recorded earlier in the week Uh, And we'll keep coming at you as you need it. We love you, Deep State Radio nerds. So long. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.